This is a Fuente podcast. Um, you know, last time I left off talking about scripture and why it doesn't make any sense to use the hyper literalist lens to examine scripture when that doesn't even seem to be. It, there seems to be a huge disconnect between ancient culture, what the author would have been intending to say, and what we're hearing whenever we look at scripture with that lens. Uh, and now I want to talk a little bit about uh, arguments from design and nature. And Oh, things look like they're designed in nature um, and not evolved. A lot of times people say, oh yeah, it's not evolved. It, it looks like it was designed. I want to talk about issues with that, issues with God of the gaps, and start looking at the evidence that converted me out of Christianity before I finally, you know, cleaned, I had to... It, like my worldview was like, if you've ever been sick and from food poisoning, and you just have to puke it all out, and you feel terrible, but then afterwards you feel a lot better, and you can reset. Like we have the the nausea of a bad epistemology that just needs to be rebooted. So look, I'm just going to dive right in and start talk. In the olden days, it was easy to argue for the existence of God. Okay, all you had to say was, look how beautiful and articulate all the animals are. And William Paley, who was an English philosopher, said if you found a stopwatch on the beach that worked perfectly, wouldn't you assume that the watch had a creator? It has all those intricate parts working together. How are all the animals and humans with our organs and eyes and blood systems, etc., not the same as a stopwatch? And so th let's break it down. One, a watch is complex. Two, a watch has an intelligent designer. Three, Life is complex. Four. Therefore, life also has an intelligent designer. Before we can go into evolution, we need to realize that just because two objects share characteristics, that doesn't imply they will share all their characteristics. I think this is called the, the, the logical fallacy of analogy. I think there's even a, a reference to this logical fallacy in a Star Trek episode in a different context. Before we go into evolution, we need to realize it, yeah, and, and consider, for example, the following parallel argument. Electric current in my house consists of a flow of electrons. Electric current comes from the power company. Lightning consists of a flow of electrons, therefore lightning must come from the power company. See how that makes no sense? So we shouldn't get our feathers ruffled too bad if it turns out there's a natural explanation for the complexity of life because it was already bad logic to begin with. Now, if you're anything like I was when I first encountered evolution, you might be feeling sick to your stomach, full of adrenaline, and maybe desperate for evolution to not make sense. I thought I was turning against my faith, my family, and my friends by believing in it. As it turned out, evolution makes total sense, but that's okay. Um, Francis Collins is the head of the National Health Institute. He was the head of the, the Human Genome Project, brilliant scientist, also a, a man of faith, loves Jesus. See, he said this, Don't worry, a believer need not fear that this investigation will dethrone the divine. If God is truly almighty, he will hardly be threatened by our puny efforts to understand the workings of his natural world. That's a great first step to... to to hear that quote and let it resonate before we start looking at what the natural world looks like. Okay, Francis Collins, as I mentioned, he's a believer. Uh, he's a brilliant scientist. 
Um, I highly suggest his book, The Language of God, if you ever want more on this topic than what I'm going to talk about today. And I'm also going to have a lot of stuff that's not from his book, too. Like, I'm going to talk about blocking a protein in, in an embryo and how that made a, a chicken have a dinosaur face and stuff. It's going to be great. Yeah, we, we've on this podcast, we've had incest and um, sex and violence, and now we're going to have dinosaurs and, and mutant chicken babies. So, we got it all. Okay, I don't know why I only have two viewers on Anchor, um, but that's okay. I'm just going to make another passive-aggressive podcast about it later and get out all my, my frustration. Well, actually, this isn't set to release until like the middle of May, so I bet I'll be as popular as the Bible Project by then. That's, um, that's the course that my, my uh, calculations have me set on. I'm thinking 2 million uh, subscribers by then. It, and, you know, and if I can get... Uh, a million and a half, that's fine too. But probably two million, maybe even three million. Okay. Up from uh, two, two subs- well, I have one subscriber actually, one subscriber right now. Through science, we can discover answers to questions like, how does life work? Okay. What science cannot tell us is answers like, why am I here? What is my purpose? And why is it morally wrong to be cruel to others? We talk about that in my humanism episode, if you want to look more into morals and what can make morals and what can't i'm going to start with the age of the earth and then i'm going to go on to the universe from there okay a century ago we didn't really know either now we know the age of the earth because of radioactive isotopes and something called radioactive decay and we know the age of the universe because of the red shifting of surrounding galaxies that's big picture let me explain so there's this radioactive crap in the Earth. Over time, it slowly turns from one kind of crap into another kind of crap. You can tell I'm an expert in this. Radioactive isotopes are made of atoms that are really big and fat. they got a bunch of clumped-on protons and neutrons in their nucleus. Okay? They're crammed full of protons. The nuclear forces holding the atoms together are too weak to hold them together forever. So imagine like a little bitty dinosaur made of Play-Doh and how stable it is. Then imagine a big fat one that's giant that's like the size of a house made of play-doh how it would droop and fall apart the nucleus of an atom sort of like that and these chunks of atoms they fall off turning one element into other elements remember the elements of the periodic table are determined by the number of protons in the nucleus of the atom so when this clump of protons falls off from the original clump of protons it makes two new elements out of that original first element so Uranium, a big old atom, slowly becomes lead, potassium slowly becomes argon, and strontium slowly becomes rubidium. By looking at the amount of uranium to lead, or potassium to argon ratio, like in a, in a clump of crap that you're looking at, you can figure out how long something's been sitting around. It's like, let's say, I eat a banana every day and I throw the peel by my bed, and when I wake up, I, you know, I do this every single day. And I wake up, and you see this disgusting pile of banana peels. You can count the banana peels to figure out how many days I've been there. Okay? Very, very stupid analogy. But radioactive decay looks works sort of like that. Now, radioactive half-life is how long it takes for half of a substance to radioactively decay. So let's say we have 100 uranium atoms. And I'm no math expert but let's just and I'm super visual so I feel sorry for you guys but let's imagine 100 uranium atoms in our head 
Uranium has a half-life of 4.5 billion years. That means in 4.5 billion years, 50 of those uranium atoms will be lead, and the other half will still be uranium. So you can look at that, and oh, if it's 50-50, it's been there for 4.5 billion years, which is also the age of the Earth, by the way. In another 4.5 billion years, there will be 25 uranium left and 75 lead atoms. See how that, imagine you have a whole pie, first 4.5 billion years, you cut the pie in half. Then the next 4.5 billion years, you cut the slice that's left in half. So you have, you, you're left with a fourth of your original uraniums. Okay, that's called a half-life. It happens every 4.5 billion years with uranium. That 50 that was left over from the first time will keep getting cut in half every 4.5 billion years. <clears throat> Imagine a lump of cheese that represents a bunch of uranium, and every day you paint half of the non-painted cheese black. The black paint is like the portion of uranium that's turned into lead. The white paint is still uranium. So the first day, your lump of cheese... Wait, okay, y'all get the idea. I don't have to keep throwing analogies at you. Hopefully y'all understand. If not, you know, just text me, email, Facebook, whatever. Okay? The whole point being, you can figure out the age of something if you know the, the, the length of time of its half-life. And as you can see, the amount of uranium gets smaller and smaller every half-life, but never completely goes away, at least not for a long time, a really long time. As time goes on, the uranium decays slower and slower. Okay? And so if you graphed it out, it would be like a... It would start decay super fast, and then rate of decay crashes. It starts going way, way, way down. Okay? Um, looking at the uranium in multiple, or, yeah, multiple different rocks, and even looking at other elements that go through radioactive decay, like uraniums, so a whole bunch of, we would call it in history, multiple attestation, okay? whole bunch of different sources. They all agree that the Earth is about 4.5 billion years old. Okay, looking at the fossil record now, Scientists are able to date which organisms start appearing and when by looking at layers of rock, looking at how old they are by the different elements, uh, half, radioactive half-lives. And then from this, we're able to say that 4.5 billion years ago, there were no fossils of life anywhere on Earth. And then if you, looking at the layers and the, the fossil record, about 500,000 years, suddenly small single-cell life forms start appearing. And as you progress further and further up and through time, the fossil record, you start seeing more and more complex life forming. Okay? Eventually, about 100,000 years ago, the, the, all the rocks that are in the layers that are about 100,000 years old, fossils that are essentially identical to ours start appearing. And as you go further in the fossil record, you're able to see life slowly getting more and more complex. We know it by radioactive isotopes, what, what age the Earth is, and there's evidence for evolution in there because we can actually see different stages of evolved life in their fossils and date them because of the radioactive decay. A fundamentalist always attacks the supposed unreliability of radioactive dating here, but just hold on. There's a lot of corroborative evidence. This is not just radioactive decay that we're looking at. 
I don't want you to be like mythicists who discard any evidence that Jesus existed. Okay, they say, oh, Pliny, some Christian must have forged Pliny's letter. They must have forged that Christians were the toxic dump of Rome in there. They must have forged every single reference to Jesus as though he was a person. Okay, you can't just hear evidence and shove your fingers in your ears and go, la, 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 la. Okay, it's from all these different rocks, all these different elements. They're half-lives. These layers, we see the fossils getting more and more complex. Okay, give evolution a chance. See if it's the simplest explanation for what's occurring. If you've ever heard of Occam's razor, let's, you know, use Occam's razor. Now to the age of the universe. The age of the universe can be determined by measuring the speed at which things are accelerating away from each other. Why is that? Imagine that you drop a water balloon onto a table. Okay, just And you have a super fast camera taking a video of this. So you can watch it in like really, really slow, slow motion. If you start the video, but you didn't turn on the camera until the splash was like halfway done, okay? With the, with the water balloon hitting the table. You start your, the video... You've recorded halfway through and play in super slow motion. You can see all the water spreading out over time. You can then use math to calculate how the video would look if you played it backwards at the point where the balloon first hits the table. Okay. By looking at how the universe is spreading, you're able to play that record back using mathematical equations and figure out when it would have all exploded and where it would have how it would have, where it would have come from. And I remember being so confused about, uh, when I was learning about this, like, wait, so if everywhere we look, things are getting further from us, does that mean the universe exploded out of nothing from Earth? I'll get into that. Okay, it's sort of like what, so this, this water balloon exploding outward, sort of like what we do with the universe, but, um, it's way simpler, okay? With the universe, space is actually stretching out. The details of that aren't really necessary for now. Just know that we can see the galaxies are moving and use math to run their movement backward. You see, in 1929, most scientists thought that the universe had no beginning or end in time. They thought that time would just go on forever in both directions and the universe was basically holding still. Okay. This all changed in 1929 when Edwin Hubble performed a famous experiment in which he looked at all the neighboring galaxies. And what he saw was really shocking. All the neighboring galaxies were moving away from us. And the further away they were, the faster they were moving. He was able to tell this because of something called redshift. Okay. An object that's giving off light looks redder than it actually is if it's moving away from you because it stretches out the light waves, lowering their frequency. So the lower the frequency of a light, the redder it looks. Red light is low frequency and violet is high frequency. All the colors are somewhere in between. So if you take a green light, for example, and move away from it super fast, the light appears slightly more reddish. You can experience something similar to this if you've ever heard a car drive by you. 
and you heard the sound of the motor change pitches bending lower as it zooms past. Think like a like an ambulance. Ew, 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 ew. If you ever heard it do that, where the, the shifts lower, in sound waves, this is called the Doppler effect, and it's essentially the same principle as red shifting in lights. When the sound waves get longer, they sound lower. Okay, just like the light appears redder when its waves get stretched out. In 1963, the Big Bang was further proved by Arno Penrose and Robert Wilson. Their instruments were picking up an annoying background fuzzy microwave radiation. They thought there was something wrong with their sensors and went outside to make sure that there weren't pigeon droppings screwing with their instruments. They thought it was pigeon crap. When they realized there was no poopy and what they were detecting, they were shocked. They were picking up the microwave background radiation from the Big Bang. In other words, they were hearing the echo of the BANG that created the universe. The sound of an explosion echoing off a faraway cliff. Imagine being able to hear the sound of the universe being created. That's what they were picking up with their instruments. Scientists can use equations to trace the origins of our universe back to a tiny, super hot, super dense point they call a singularity. And by scientists, I don't mean some atheist conspiracy. I mean the Christian ones, too. In fact, one of the big pro proponents of the Big Bang originally was a Catholic priest. And so it, it, it's something to point out. In medieval times, Thomas Aquinas, when approached by non-believers, he was mocked for his beliefs. Because he, he was saying this, listen, he's, in making fun of them, they would ask what God was doing before the universe existed. And his answer was, before the universe, there was no time. God exists outside of time. And they laughed at him. Okay, And he argued this using 2 Peter 3.8. If people made fun of him, nobody's laughing now. The concept of time before time was funny a hundred years ago. Now it's mainstream science. As it turns out, space needs time to exist. And time needs space to exist. And both appear to have exploded into existence out of nothing about 13.7 billion years ago in the Big Bang. Robert Jastrow, an astrophysicist who was frustrated with the Big Bang, wrote in his book God and the Astronomers about the first, his first time learning about all of this. He says, At this moment... It seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak, and as he pulls himself over the final rock, there he is, greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. How frustrating. He goes on to say, Now we see the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. The details differ, but the essential elements and the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. The chain of events leading to man commence suddenly and sharply at a definite moment in time in a flash of light and energy. Francis Collins stated that the Big Bang forces the conclusion that nature had a defined beginning. I cannot see how nature could have created itself. Only a supernatural force that's outside of space and time could have done that. All right, that's all we have time for for today's podcast. Thank you for stopping by. Next time we're going to continue to look at evidence. We're going to go more into genetics as opposed to just figuring out the uh, dates and ages of things. But as you can see clearly, this data doesn't cohere with the 6,000 
your uh, earth, and that's okay because it's incredible. And 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 if you just not look at any data that's that's contrary to your beliefs as immoral, and just bask in how powerful God is and how amazing He is. The the universe is thirteen point seven billion years old. That's so much more exciting and makes God look so much more powerful. And it's so un- incomprehensibly big. And it's stretching bigger. And it's so big that the light waves of some parts of it can't even reach us because it stretch as it gets further from us, it stretches faster and faster, and the light waves can't even reach us. And one more thing about the universe stretching out. Think of it like... Um, if you drew some points on a balloon and then started blowing the balloon up, and then from every point on the balloon, it would look like everything was getting further from that point, and it would happen faster and faster the more air went into the balloon. And so that's how we know that space is expanding. And that's hard to wrap our heads around, and immediately you want to go, well, what what the hell is inside the balloon? It, it's not actually like that. Um... But I mean, if you ever, if you want more interesting thoughts about that in space and time, there's a book called Hyperspace by Mikio Kaku, and it's really, really good. But anyway, uh, God's amazing. The universe is amazing. It's giant. Science is exciting. It's so fun to learn about. Um, learn some science, okay? And you don't even have to agree with me. You don't have. It, what, learning science is never a bad idea. Okay, it doesn't mean you're evil to learn science. You can go on being a fundamentalist. Just learn the science too. Go buy a copy of the Language of God by Francis Collins and read it. And then and then you can counter people like me all the better because then you'll know our arguments. Okay. All right. Peace and love, guys. Thank you so much for listening.